back to another episode of the Think Right Podcast. We're your hosts, Bria and Tor, here to help lighten the load as you learn about the law. Think Ripe exists to deliver legal and civic education resources that are easy to access, easy to understand, and easy to apply. Our digital database houses an extensive collection of resources, but our podcast is all about action. Each conversation is designed to, one, educate you about public law, two, equip you with practical tools and new perspectives that ultimately encourage you to, three, engage in your community. Because let's face it, the laws apply to everyone, whether we actually learn them or not, which is why we're bringing you real stories from public servants all across the nation to help you and I navigate the divide. Law school has its benefits, but you shouldn't have to break the bank just to know the basics. So buckle up, put the books away. We're back with another bite-sized bit of legal education. You're listening to Think Right. Class is now in session. Today's episode tackles the narrative surrounding public defense. So some of us may have heard about um, public defenders, maybe different myths or kind of common conceptions that are associated with them either being overworked, underpaid, um, that they're unable to do their job adequately because of the workload, um, or maybe even people have personal experience with public defenders that was either positive or negative. Um, and that they've drawn their own assumptions about that. But today we're addressing it all. We're talking to someone who does the work day to day um, and has been in the field as a career public defender. So we're excited to be speaking to James Rail today. He's gonna give us some personal insight um, and just give us also practical tips that we'll be taking away with us. Um, we're excited to dive in and start chatting. Sounds good. I had the pleasure of working with James last semester at the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office, and I'll let him go ahead and tell us a little bit more about himself. Yeah, so I'm a 2011 graduate of uh, Marquette University Law School. Um, I started as a public defender in Wisconsin uh, in 2011. So there's a state agency there. It's the Wisconsin State Public Defender's Office. Um, So I was in there, Sheboygan and Milwaukee offices Uh, And then in 2018, I moved to Phoenix and started working with the Maricopa County Public Defender's Office as a deputy public defender. So I'm coming up on 10 years. June 20th will be 10 years as a public defender. I handle um, my office's most serious cases. So homicide, sexual assault, violent crime. Um, And I love the I love the work. I love the. the mission and I'm excited to talk to you guys. Sweet. Thank you so much. I think um, initially um, I just want uh, to get a breakdown of like what is public defense? How does that compare to like criminal defense generally? And when you talk about you love the mission, what does that mean? Yeah. Sure. So um, the, the landmark case is Gideon v. Wainwright. Uh, basically, Gideon um, is this gentleman who's in custody. Um, he doesn't have the money to afford a lawyer. Uh, he winds up representing himself. Um, and the Supreme Court says, no, that's not right. He, um, he should have the right to, to be represented by a lawyer. Um, so starting in, the, starting in the 70s and 80s, actually, I think some public defender offices date back to the 60s. But the basic concept is, you can't afford a lawyer. The court makes a determination about the fact that you're indigent or you can't 
afford a lawyer and they assign you a lawyer uh, that's going to represent you. So different jurisdictions have different mechanisms for making that happen, for getting someone assigned. Um, so, you know, when I say I like the mission, um, you know, it's interesting for me to be a public defender at this point, given everything that happened in 2020 um, after George, Flo George Floyd was murdered. Uh, a lot of those things, a lot of those concerns with uh, police conduct and the way um, people are treated as part of the criminal justice system. I mean, those have been on my mind for a decade. And it's interesting to see those kind of come to the, the forefront and, and really be on everyone's mind. Um, this is not something that we're new to. And I've always sort of felt like we're on the front lines fighting an important battle day to day. Um, so that's, that's what I mean when I say I, I enjoy the mission. And I think for that reason, I'll be a public defender until I, until I retire. I, I don't have any desire personally uh, to be chasing down new clients, to be hounding clients for money, uh, to say to a client, I can't file this motion or I can't go to trial unless you pay me more money. Um, I like representing people that can't afford a lawyer. And I think we give excellent representation. Uh, we have a lot of resources to throw at uh, cases. Uh, we have a defense team instead of just me. So I have a paralegal, I have an investigator. Uh, we have money for experts. I mean, we're really experts at this work. And sometimes I think people would rather, you know, go hire somebody who is maybe doing some criminal defense, some family law, whatever, to, to keep the lights on. And we don't have to worry about that. And that's, that's really nice on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that's, um, I'll pause from the question I was gonna ask you and kind of just transition towards this point because what you're touching on is hugely important and it kind of touches on the um, opening myths that I, that I stated initially in our, in our intro a lot of folks think, you know, public defenders offices don't have a lot of resources, so they can't do a lot of things or they can't perform. So it's not that the lawyers are not good, but they don't have the resources to do that. You being a person who's been in more than one setting and worked in different offices, um, can you tell us, is that normal? So you're talking about investigators and experts. These are things that you a normal person might assume comes with every public defense office. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on why that's not the case or, or um, what you've observed in your own experience? Sure, so I think, I think everyone's heard the horror stories and I, I can only speak for the offices I've been in, uh, but in Wisconsin, it's a state agency and then they have a bunch of satellite offices around the state. Here in Maricopa County, it's a county agency. Um, so, so the nice part for us in Maricopa County is, um, you know, the, the county board has basically carved out a portion of the county's budget to, to allow us to do this work. I don't think that's a luxury, uh, do this work well. And I don't think that's a luxury every, um, every public defender has across the country. I know some offices are overworked. Um, you know, in Wisconsin, we had a, a caseload that we had to meet on a yearly basis. Um, and it was, it's kind of complicated how you get to that, that caseload. Uh, but it's basically taking into account what types of cases you're handling. And, uh, you know, if, if you're handling more serious cases, then you needed to, needed to open a certain number of cases within a year. Um, and that would be less cases if you're handling more serious cases. If you're handling misdemeanors, there would be more cases. Um, here in Maricopa County, we don't 
have a, a specific caseload. Um, and if we're feeling overworked, we can tell our, our manager that we've reached what we call our ethical limit, which means we can't take one more case without sacrificing our, our representation of an existing client. And I think what's nice in my office is that they don't just want you to go up to that line. They want you to be able to, um, to sort of pivot as necessary. You need to be nimble on your feet uh, such that you can litigate in a particular case um, and, and it won't be a, a hardship or, or impossible to, to do that. Um, but I know that's not the experience in every office. I, I know that's not something every public defender has the luxury of um, having at their disposal. I feel like I've been pretty lucky in that regard. Um, but I think regardless of where, where you are and what resources you have, um, you know, the people doing this work, um, say you're in an office where you don't have uh, a manageable caseload, that's not the public defender's fault. <laughs> and, you know, that's probably an issue with funding, whether it's additional attorney positions uh, that need to be funded. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because our clients have, they're disenfranchised people and they, they've been disenfranchised for a long time. So they may have had any number of professional people sit in front of them over the course of years or decades who have made promises or, or lied to them. And they come in sort of with that, that understandable chip on their shoulder, which, which I get. Um, yeah. And then I think sometimes there's, there's difficulty parsing out the difference between a bad lawyer and a bad case. Um, you, you can be an excellent lawyer, um, but if, you, if the facts are bad, um, if your client's record is bad, you're in a precarious position. Um, so you're going to have to figure out a way out of that hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a balancing act. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of in that regard, um, what do you what do you generally wish that clients and their families knew about your role or about just how cases proceed through the system or about the facts of their case and how like there might be nothing you can do? Um, do you notice that everybody comes in with certain misconceptions about the process or um, generally just what do you wish they knew prior to being involved in the system? Um, a couple things. I, I think every, every criminal case is going to be a time investment. I think a, a lot of people understandably feel like uh, if they just get in front of a judge and explain the situation uh, that it can go away. Um, and I think that comes from this, this perspective that things should be fair. And I think a lot of our clients have this sort of fairness lens that they look at uh, their case uh, and the system through, and they're, they're looking for fundamental fairness. And sometimes the way the law is written, um, there is not that fundamental fairness. Uh, it's, you know, it's not a matter of, um, it's not a matter of, of being you know, unwilling being unwilling to sort of accept the, the situation on the ground, but just wanting it to be fair. And, you know, in some ways the system's just not flexible. If a statute is written a certain way, if you're in a certain sentencing category, um, a good example would be, I think a lot of clients come in the system thinking the jury might have a role in your sentencing. Um, and the reality is that the jury's job is just to apply the law. So has the state proven beyond a reasonable doubt every element of the offense? Um, yes or no and it's not necessarily fair <laughs> sometimes uh, but it's not illegal so i think sometimes you have to 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 move over that hump that can be very difficult and then 
sort of like I was talking before, um, I think there's this inclination to think that every public defender is overworked. You know, I think I, I, I often have clients call me and say, I know you're very busy. I don't want to, I don't want to bother you. And I, what I say back is no, I'm, I'm not too busy. I have time to talk to you. Um, so I think, I think working with your lawyer and being, being willing to have those conversations, I, I can't speak for every public defender across the country, but communication is huge and just being open-minded. Yeah, that's so good. That's, um, something that Tor and I were talking about, even just with like prior to having this conversation and deciding to touch on this topic for an episode is reminding people that, you know, yes, it's a public defender. Yes, the, it's provided to you, but it's the same as if in terms of legal ethics, it's the same as if I go out and hire somebody with my own dollars and say, you know, defend me. That person is your attorney. You do have the right to ask them questions. You do have you are you're like perfectly within the realm of reasonable things to do to call someone like you up if you're representing them and say, hey, help me understand what's going on here. And I think that's something that um, I, I know myself would want people to know that like you can inter interact with your attorney, interact with your public defender, just as you would um, someone that you paid for with your own like coins. And so I think right. people miss the value of that relationship and don't really get the most out of it um because they're not really leaning in and, and probing into um, that relationship the way that they could if you maybe can touch on personally some of the things that you've experienced um, over the course of your 10 years that you were not anticipating so we've talked about maybe public misconceptions about the role of a public defender but have there any, been any elements of the role that you um, went into it thinking one thing and learned quickly that it was completely different or um, that maybe evolved even over the course of the time that you've been a public defender? Well, I do think, you know, I think the different players in the system, be it judges or prosecutors or defense attorneys, can look back at the past, you know, 30 years uh, of criminal justice and see objectively that it's problematic. But I, I think there's a difference between seeing that and being willing to actually make substantive changes on the ground and, yeah. and um, you know, systemic changes. Um, you know, often I think it's a situation where courts, um, sometimes the state, they want the train to get into the station as soon as possible. And frankly, that's not my job. Uh, I don't care if the train gets there on time. My job is to make sure it gets there on the tracks. You know, <laughs> that's not the best analogy, um, but, um, they're just concerned about that train getting there and getting the case through the system. And I think there's a real rush to, to move cases through the system sometimes, uh, which can be unfair. Um, I also think uh, there's, there's sort of a lack of understanding of how dynamic all of this is. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, in Arizona, there's presumptive sentencing. So it's, uh, you know, there's a presumptive sentence and it can be aggravated or mitigated. And you know, mitigation is stuff like, you know, you had adverse childhood experiences, you have a trauma history, um, you have a supportive family, things like that. And when we talk about a trauma history and adverse childhood experiences, um, sometimes you'll find that the government or the state is very concerned about the status of victims, right? Um, that's, that's a big thing for them. In Arizona, we have uh, a victim's bill of rights, but the reality is that today's victims are tomorrow's defendants. And this is this is a dynamic situation and it's very fluid and, and you can almost see it coming. Uh, and it's sad, it's, it's really sad. Um, you know, these, these are 
the worst times in a person's life and the ripple effects are enormous. When a person goes to prison, if they have children, uh, the effect on the family, it's, it's not just what you'll see right now. It's what you'll see in 10 years and 15 years. And God forbid, you know, that person becomes the next defendant down the road. And, you know, as a society, it's, it's frustrating for us because as a society, when we see people navigate things like trauma histories or drug addiction, we celebrate those people. We elevate those people uh, because what they've done is outstanding. It's exceptional. But when they can't quite be exceptional or outstanding, we somehow elevate them and send them to prison. Yeah. Um, I don't know the most recent figures, but in Arizona, what I've, what I've heard is that in Arizona, it costs about $30,000 a year to house someone in DOC. And you think about what some of that money could do if we invested it on the front end and started thinking upstream a little bit about solutions and sending people, I mean, you could send someone to a nice, a nice rehab for 30 grand a year. Um, and, and it's complicated because after, you know, after the Affordable Care Act uh, started requiring treatments, um, you know, some of these facilities are better than others. Um, so I think it's a complicated situation. And when you look at what our clients have to navigate on a daily basis, whether it's just as part of their regular life or coming out of prison or jail, I mean, it's a big challenge. And I don't know that as a society, we really understand how big that challenge is on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think um, there are so many things that you're saying that I'm like nodding my head and taking notes. Like, oh, I already said that. Um, I I appreciate just that you're not only sharing your experiences, but I feel like you do such a good job of of, of putting yourself in your client's position and yeah. like offering empathy um, in a place where the this the legal system doesn't offer very much empathy. Um, especially in the criminal legal system. And so it's, it's encouraging that you and I know other people at your office bring that to the table. Um, have, I, I guess my next question is, is there any, um, is there any way in which besides you personally offer, um, support for clients to understand this system? Is there any way that the public could do a better job of preparing people who might be in this position one day? So whether it's um, like civil education or having, you know, being more engaged in election or whatever the, whatever the solution might be, how can people learn about the system and be better prepared if they ever were to run into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I have told colleagues and I've had this conversation with colleagues frequently over the last decade that our, our education system could really benefit from having some kind of, um, I don't know if it's a, a civil um, civil remedies course or, or whatever, just to mm -hmm. understand your basic rights and, and that, um, you know, I frequently have clients point out to me that they weren't read their Miranda rights when they were arrested. And that's because I think the conception around Miranda is that, is that it's basically what you see on TV, that you would be read your rights as you're arrested. Uh, when in reality, it doesn't trigger until you are in custody being subjected to interrogation. So knowing the difference and when that has to happen, um, 
the reality is that officers are basically taught to get you to waive your Miranda rights um, and just kind of go over them in a cursory way and knowing that you should assert those rights and that you can't really, by the time an officer has arrested you, taken you into custody and decided to interrogate you, you're probably not talking your way out of that situation. But from a fairness standpoint, you think you might be able to. So having that basic education, I think is huge. I think there's also a lot of misinformation out there. Um, and it's <laughs> one of the biggest culprits um, can be a, a local news outlet. Uh, I can't tell you how often I've had a local, uh, local news outlet write about one of my cases and something's inaccurate uh, because the people they have pulling that information from the system um, don't understand it. Uh, they don't understand where you are and, and why you might do something. How often have we seen news stories where someone says that, um, you know, this defendant pled not guilty uh, as if that's an anomaly. I mean, why would you do anything but plead not guilty <laughs> until you're given something in consideration for waiving your rights? Um, so it's a normal part of the system to have a not guilty arraignment, but that's somehow sensational in the local media. Um, and then I think it's also understanding, uh, I think as a society, we need to understand and I feel, I feel this way about my practice. I, I don't know that I've ever represented a true sociopath, someone who's just out there hurting people um, to hurt people. And I think as a, as a society, that's our conception of who winds up in the criminal justice system. The reality is, you know, like I was saying, yesterday's victims are, are today's defendants. People, people commit crimes because they are addicted to drugs or have a trauma history. And that, that's why people commit crimes, not because they want to hurt people. So I think it's, there's an education component that you have to be proactive about, um, learning what your rights are and how to assert them. And then I think also being skeptical of what you might see on the local news at 6 p.m. Uh, and also being compassionate and understanding about people who are coming out of the system and understanding that you know, everyone makes mistakes. There are lawyers that have felony convictions, but in Arizona, in Wisconsin, both are open record states. So anytime you go to apply for uh, an apartment, like get a lease or a job, they're gonna ask that question. Have you been convicted of a crime? And I, it's interesting that we would hold um, something against somebody for such a lengthy period of time. So I think there is a, an advocacy component, maybe uh, fighting against those records being so public. Uh, I don't think everyone needs to know that you have a prior felony conviction from 25 years ago for, for felony shoplifting, which is just shoplifting with an artifice. So you had a backpack and that made it a felony. You know, why do people need to know that 25 years down the road? Especially because we know, <laughs> I know I feel like I'm just rambling, but uh, especially because we know how enforcement works. You know, you know, there are people in Arizona who are felons based on possession of marijuana. Uh, how many of those people were arrested on ASU's campus? How many of those people were, were arrested on U of A's campus? Mm -hmm. uh, let's look at where they were arrested. And I think we can understand how fundamentally unfair that is. You know, So I think we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> it reminds me too, every time I kind of think of this, because I was talking about, so, talking about something similar in the context of voting in Iowa, because Iowa, I think, was one of the last states to restore felon, people with felony their voting rights. Um, and just kind of the general notion of double jeopardy. It's like, if I've paid my debt to society, why am I still walking around with this badge, the scarlet letter on me so that people can still point a finger at me, still condemn me in perpetuity for constructive 
criminal criminal action that I did who knows when and so it's kind of like a double-edged sword because we we want to hold people to the fire and do everything we can to make sure you know we're um adhering to law and justice yet we still um penalize people for problematic behavior that happened however long ago and so I think that there there's work definitely to be done there and a lot of the things that you're mentioning to remind me kind of just of the interdisciplinary nature of civics and legal education I think the way that it's designed and set up right now is that it's it's such an ivory tower that it's so exclusive that um, you know, only people who go to law school get to learn about law and get to know about law and get to do all the things that have to do with that. Not realizing that these are the policies and regulations and systems that govern our nation. And so at some fundamental level, like you were saying, we all have to do our role to at least um, equip, equip ourselves with the basics. And so I'm so grateful that you've touched on some practical points and also the important reasons why doing that work matters because I think we can sit around and have conversations and um, fireside chats about things we can do. But a lot of times people also need to know, well, like, why does that even matter? Does that affect me? Is that even relevant in my case? I don't know anyone who's a felon. Why is any of this important? And so I'm glad that you've given context for a lot of the practical points you've shared too. Yeah, I just wanted to add, um, I think something that's really helpful, especially for our listeners as they're like, learning the legal system and like legal basics um how important compassion is through all of those processes and um i i i think about it from two different standpoints i got to observe a school one time when i was an undergrad um an elementary school that had a like unbelievable trauma life skills program yeah. and so teachers were highly highly trained um to deal with trauma responses. So instead of a child has a trauma response and instead of saying, go to the principal's office or like you're suspended or go sit by yourself, it was based on the level, either a, a student, like classroom response, teacher response, call the life coach or like call the trauma professionals. And so there were different levels and none of them were, went straight to discipline. And that was such a beautiful process to me because I wish it was what we saw in every school and in life generally. And mm -hmm. in the, in the um, record and felony record context, I also think about like that perspective from that, that movie with um, Kevin Hart was in the remake and it's like this older white man who needs help around the house and hires this young black man with no experience or skills, right? And he oh, gives, okay. him, yeah. gives him chance after chance after chance. And that was so powerful to me because from people in positions of power, you get to choose empathy. You get to say, he likely doesn't have the opportunity, the skills. He doesn't know how to navigate these conversations in this elite life that I've lived. So I can either choose to say, to write him off and say, well, you're a felon, or I can choose, this is likely a, a response from your experiences, and I can choose to give you more chances. And so just how powerful that can be in so many different contexts. If we say, you might have a felony conviction, it might have been 25 years ago, I'm going to let you rent this apartment anyways. Like, just you might have grown as a human being. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you're not working to change the system from the inside out, like that is something very practical everybody can do. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
I think it begs the question too, like what, what is the purpose of our criminal legal system? Is it to rehabilitate people like you were mentioning earlier? So, you know, you, there are avenues that people can, um, that we could reallocate funding and make sure that people are um, basically preventative measures rather than on the back end. Um, or is the purpose of our criminal justice system just strictly to punish people? Because um, I think then the next question would be, is it work? Whatever we decide it's for, is it working? Um, and my obvious answer to that is no, because we wouldn't all be sitting on this call if that was not the case. <laughs> but um, I think it, it requires some um, empathy. It requires heart work. It requires head work that a lot of people in our society are not willing to do because like I said, they don't think it impacts them, um, but it all does. It really all works together. Like we talked about so many kind of just ways that there's intersectional links between um, law enforcement, between the legal profession, between judges and people who are enforcing the law at different level, people who are writing the laws. You mentioned juries earlier. Um, I think that is one of the few remnants of um, public engagement that we still see kind of sprinkled into day-to-day um, -day legal doing. So you still got, you still get some of that public interaction, but I think we would all fare well. I mean, if, if we all are susceptible to jury duty, then we all should at least be required to take a class before they get the call or the, the letter in the mail, like <laughs> something. It just blows our mind that there's not um, more work being done in that area. And so we're grateful to have folks like you be, who are willing to talk about it, who are willing to advocate in their actual role and um, kind of just in a public facing position like this as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we're, we're so far from being where we need to be. I mean, I, we've made some important changes over the past, I would say 10 years. We're becoming more mindful of some of these things, but uh, we have so much work to do. And I think, I think for your listeners, this just comes down to, um, you know, whether it's, whether it's their personal experience uh, with a public defender uh, or what they can do to, um, to make the system more fair, it just comes down to being willing to step up mm -hmm. and, um, and be part of the solution. So like you were just saying, I think that's an excellent point. It's, it's contacting well, it's part of it's tracking some of these bills that make their way through the, the, the state legislature and, and knowing who your state legislator is and the impact of some of those bills, because some of these bills just get passed very quietly. And then we see the impact two or three years down the road and someone says, well, that seems unfair. Um, so knowing who those people are uh, and, and like Tor was saying, having that empathy for people in the community um, realizing we're all human, human beings, I think in training people to, to be cognizant of that, something I've floated to, to some colleagues is I think you should take baby, baby public defenders, baby prosecutors and baby judges and put them in a jail pod for a weekend when they first get hired and make them live a weekend in a jail pod and understand what a day in jail is like. So yeah. then when you're throwing out numbers like six, seven, eight years, you understand what that means. Yeah. Go to a prison, see what a prison looks like. See, see that there is very little... Um, you know, job training or education or any effort to rehabilitate in the prison system um, and, and know that and don't say, <laughs> you know, we're going to send this person to prison for a drug crime uh, because uh, they need, you know, the, the help they're going to get in prison. What help? Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's just, 
education and advocacy. That's what it comes yeah. down to. That's so good. Yeah, I, I think you answered our last question too. Just what can what can people do to help change the the criminal legal system? And um, mm -hmm. I think just to refine a tiny bit, I I'm curious what you um, what you think people can do in terms of if their public defender's office doesn't have the resources, the investigators, the experts, the way that yours does. Um, what can they do as a community? Who would they call? How would they advocate for better resources for public defenders? So it depends. It depends on how the public defender's office is, is funded. So I work for a county agency. So it would be contacting the county board and saying, this is important to me. I want these people to be well-funded. I want them to be able to hire experts. Um, and you know, this, this really should be an apolitical issue um, if you're worried about the money component, you want whatever the outcome to be, um, you want whatever the outcome is to be effective. And um, if we're wasting money, it, it should be apolitical. So it's, um, it's making sure people have quality representation on the front end. That way you don't wind up spending a ton of money on their appeal because they had ineffective representation. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an, if it's a number and cents issue, look at it that way. So contacting the county board, contacting in Wisconsin, I worked for a state agency. So contacting the state legislature, prioritizing keeping, honestly, keeping people like me around. There is a fair amount of, of turnover um, with public defenders. Sometimes that's because it's just not the right work for you and that's okay. Um, but often it's because people can make more money in the private sector. Once you have a certain amount of trial experience, um, there are firms that are going to hire you and maybe pay you better than they than you would be paid as a public defender so it's prioritizing keeping people around in that five to ten year range because i think if you get someone past five years and keep them until 10 years they're more likely to stick around it's it's difficulty maintaining um that core of people and, and keeping people around until they hit year five um so i think I think just prioritizing having quality lawyers as public defenders having those offices you know being able to, we're not trying to waste money, but being able to function in a way that provides effective rep representation. So contacting county boards, contacting the state legislature. Um, and, and if this is your public defender and you feel like something is not happening that should be happening, it's just that communication piece. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think being willing to say, hey, is this a situation where you would investigate? Why or why not? Um, you know, why, has, why, haven't, why hasn't your investigator done any work on this case yet? Uh, would we hire an expert? Why or why not? You know, just asking those questions. And, and I think that's okay to ask those questions, but not going into that relationship with unnecessary skepticism based on what you were told by someone in your, you know, jail pod, by your family, um, by, by what so-and-so said about their case that was handled by a public defender five years ago, uh, not knowing anything about that case or the dynamics that went into the outcome. So those yeah. things. Yeah, that's great. Yep. Well, thank you so much, James. I feel oh, absolutely. Like you you've shared perspective on like every angle we could have hoped for. So <laughs> I, we really awesome. appreciate your time. Oh, no worries, guys.